women are paid 84 cents on the dollar to male workers. That is correct. Uh, it's even worse for women of color. Of course, we know that both within and outside the religious sector, there is this disparity when it comes to, to gender. So, you know, you were alluding to this here, but what, what is research and, and the work shown you about pay disparity among male and female you pastors? You know, you talked yes. about from the benefits side, but kind of just give us the stark reality of, of the disparity. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hill, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to on an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Our guests are Rob Fox and Kathy Gore-Chapel. Rob is the president of CBF Benefits Board, and Kathy is the executive director of Baptist Women in Ministry of North Carolina. Thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you, Andy. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. You've, you've got some, some fans. Groupies. Yes, yeah. some groupies. These guys follow us everywhere. Yeah. As the uh, CBF Church Benefits Board, you, you all are, are um, getting contacted often when it comes to clergy compensation. What would you say are, are the most common misunderstandings about clergy compensation from, from the church side? Rob, we'll start with you. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you, Andy. Great question. Um, it was last fall when Kathy invited us to come down to BWM North Carolina's meeting. We began this conversation around compensation and negotiating compensation. I think for our Baptist churches, the biggest misunderstanding around compensation is what we call the lump sum approach. So let's say there's someone like Caleb Faust, who he's talking to a church, and uh, they offer him a job as a pastor, and they say, Caleb, please come be our pastor. We'll pay you $80,000. This is just a made-up number. 
And Caleb says, that's great. And he gets in, he moves his books in on the first day on the job, and he goes and talks to the finance administrator and says, well, I'd like to talk about my health insurance. And they said, you don't have health insurance. Take it out of the 80000 Or uh, let me talk about my retirement. You've got to take that out. So now Caleb's 80000 <coughs> is more like 50000 So um, those are some things that we, we often talk with churches about. Baptist churches think they're having a benefit for their minister by giving them that flexibility, but they're actually not. So understanding that compensation and benefits is not a lump sum. It's, two, it's at least two different I like, we're actually having this conversation, and Caleb Faust is standing right here, and he has just been called by a church, and recently had to go through contract negotiations. So right. we're, we're going to get to kind of more of the gender-based aspect of this mm-hmm. conversation in a moment. But from Kathy, Kathy, from your side, thinking through what, what are the most common uh, misunderstandings from the minister's side? Um, from the minister's side, I think, um, and I was having this conversation with some women in ministry yesterday, Uh, But this is for women and for men, for all of us, that we assume that the the congregation is looking out for our best interests. And they are to a point. It's what they know or what they don't know. We have to take that on ourselves. So I think that's something from the minister's side. We have to make sure that we are covering our bases, that we have a responsibility. Because the churches, and I've noticed this, Uh, through my experience, and I spent 30 years in congregational ministry, um, that when policies are written, these words are often uh, associated with any policy, intentionally vague. (laughs) And we we need to be aware of that. Yeah. One of the challenges today is that uh, people are still called to serve the church. The churches are struggling to meet budget. A call to ministry is not a call to poverty though there are certain segments of our Christian population that are called to that. But many churches cannot afford to offer ministers the full benefits they once received. So, um, Rob, you know, how are you all advising churches around this? Great question. So, yes, that's true. Churches are facing budget kind of crunch and crisis and those things. So, as we talk about negotiating compensation and benefits, we talk about three things. First, knowing your value. So a minister comes out of seminary, they're well-educated, understanding that they are professional. Um, And when they're visiting with a search committee, normally that search committee is made up of lay people who may be doctors, may be attorneys, may be school teachers. Um, And all those people, when they take jobs, are actually rewarded for their experience and their education with compensation and benefits. So we talk about that piece. We talk about knowing their numbers, so there's different kind of um, tools out there like churchsalary.com to look at compensation numbers. So understanding what does a minister make in North Carolina, let's say, in this part of North Carolina, on average for a similar position, or even looking at what a school teacher makes or other professionals, so understanding that. But Andy, to your point, with churches who are in a budget crunch, it's not about going in and saying, well, hey, I'm worth this, you got to pay this. It's about negotiating a win-win. So understanding maybe the church cannot pay fully what you'd like. Well, let's negotiate some time off. Let's negotiate a sabbatical. Let's negotiate some uh, non-monetary pieces that could assist with that. And asking about bivocational options so this person could do other professional work. Uh, Andy, I know that you've been in that place before, as I have, and that can be 
it can be intense, but it can be very creative and uh, be abundant life in a sense to do uh, both a professional job and work in a church. So it's about having that conversation early on and not getting into a place where the minister's feeling like they're not being compensated fairly and it's frustrating for them on, on their best day and worst day. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I was hearing you talk about education levels. So I often remind my brother, who is an amazing brother, works at the University of Georgia, has a, a master's degree. And I remind him often that my master's degree was actually twice his master's degree because I had a 90-hour MDiv, much like right. you all had. Uh, but, you know, the pay doesn't always follow. So, Kathy, from the minister's side, um, now that church's budgets are, are shrinking, you know, what do, what do you recommend for them as they're trying to go about fair pay and negotiation? Mm -hmm. Well, in addition to what Rob has described, I also encourage people and churches to look for additional partnerships. Uh, in this day of MDivs being partnered with Food and Faith or with nonprofit work or whatever, are you looking to call someone who may be an effective minister, not only in your church congregation, but in your community? And the church could help forge those relationships with a nonprofit so that when that person comes, uh, perhaps that nonprofit is officed in that church. And perhaps this minister could be on staff with the nonprofit or executive director of that nonprofit in addition to being on the congregation, but a church making a partnership so attractive to the partner and to the individual that it would be one of these win-win situations. Mm -hmm. I think that's a key piece in addition to ne negotiating the time off, which is huge, um, and, um, and then looking at ways to partner creatively. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. We are excited for a free giveaway sponsored by the NRSV Updated Edition from Zondervan. Zondervan has given us beautiful leather-bound NRSV Updated Editions to share with our listeners. We are giving one of these comfort print Bibles to the first listener that shares this episode on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Here's what you need to know. Be on the lookout for CBF's post about this episode. Click and share that post with the phrase, I want an NRSV updated edition. Be the first to do this, and we will mail you a new leather-bound NRSV updated edition. So obviously kind of serving in a dual role here, you know, hosting the podcast, but also from CBF North Carolina side, working hand-in-hand hand with congregations around this. And it's, a, it's an interesting conversation these days. And so what we're leaning to is that last piece, which is, okay, you can't stretch your bu budget anymore, but you could probably give two more weeks of vacation. And what minister wouldn't want to have another two Sundays off? And it'll cost you 100 to $200 of an honorarium or bringing a guest person in. Uh, you know, think about sabbatical. Th these kinds of things that 
you know, oftentimes it's not the tangible monetary piece that people are looking for, but there's other things that can be built into it. Uh, compensation among ministers is also a conversation on equity. Um, I can remember being an associate pastor at a substantial church. The senior pastor's compensation was $70,000 more than mine. What do we know about compensation disparity among ministerial you know, positions, and, and is, is that a conversation churches should be, should be having? Rob, we'll start with you. Yeah, absolutely. So this is where we begin to explore after the Baptist Women in Ministry of North Carolina's conference about equity. We've just begun that research, but what we're seeing is similar, Andy, to what you're talking about in the even for-profit world. Female pastors are being paid less. They're not getting the same benefits, um, and they are often being called to churches who are in budget crisis is what we're kind of three key points. Kathy and I were recently leading a financial wellness um, experience, and you want to talk about like yeah let me give that example that'd be great thank you for letting me do that and we didn't know this was we did not know this was going to happen when we walked into the room with the 10 or 12 people that were in there but out of the people that were involved in this conference four were women not one woman at that conference had benefits the men did but the women did not and so there you have this live statistical opportunity to say one-third of this group of people and it was divided by male, female. Uh, the women did not have uh, benefits, retirement. And, and at this point in my life, and I'll, I'll wait and maybe enlarge this later, but at my point in life, I am more aware that when you are negotiating a salary, especially starting out from sem for seminary and as you progress, you are negotiating your retirement your retirement at the end of your life will be reflected by what you've been able to negotiate or been given from uh, healthy churches and churches that were being very generous or that knew how to, to do that and ministers that knew how to, to uh, exhibit self-care. Um, but that you are determining what kind of retirement you will have. Yeah, let's, let's, let's go that a little deeper there because okay. that's really, you know, so women are paid 84 cents on the dollar to male workers. That is correct. Uh, it's even worse for women of color. Of course, we know that both within and outside the religious sector, there is this disparity when it comes to, to gender. So, you know, you were alluding to this here, but what, what has you all's research and, and the work shown you about pay disparity among male and female you pastors? You know, you talked yeah. about from the benefits side, but kind of just give us the stark reality of, of the disparity. Um, and this is based on, on my experience through a long career, really 50 years career, um, and observing and working with women of all ages uh, through these years. Um, churches that are full of good people, and I love the church and am committed to that. I'm a, I'm a congregational minister at heart. Um, they don't know certain things, or they assume, and that word, becomes larger than life. Churches assume that a woman will be married to someone who has better health benefits than the church could provide, so they don't provide any. The churches assume that um, a maternity leave will take care of itself. A maternity leave is one of the, the biggest uh, pieces that a woman, when she gets pregnant, will have to deal with because she will probably have to write her own. Churches are getting better at that, but everywhere when I was pregnant, I had to write my own maternity leave policy. 
then when I went to an academic institution, I had to initiate writing a, a maternity leave policy for someone else. And I've had to do it again since. And I know Pam Durso, when she was um, executive director for Baptist Women in Ministry, had to write a maternity leave policy. That should have already been taken care of. But it hasn't, so we do it. But what can we do? This is my challenge in life today. Um, instead of just putting the fire out or making it workable like a policy or, or negotiating salary today, what can we do preemptively that we can help change behavior for the future? So that's, that's what I'm about. How, how can we educate our churches to know not to be intentionally vague, that we need to take care of our people because what that's going to do is foster loyalty so that you're not having to go through this process of calling a new minister every two or three years and going through this again. Um, so you, you will uh, benefit the church. If you take care of your people, salary, benefits, et cetera, your church will be more healthy. So that's what's in it for churches, if they want to ask that question. Uh, yes, and I'll just affirm that, and Andy jumped back in to say to your question around equity, and we have a challenge on one side related to data with our, with our fellowship, we have an opportunity on the other side, which I call the professionalization of the clergy. The challenge with being a young fellowship is we don't, we haven't, we don't have the data. We're, we're collecting that now and researching it. Once we have better data, we can look at this and do some uh, better comparison. On the other side, what I'll say is my dream, my goal for church benefits is to raise up this level of professionalism. Now, let me say this, get off my soapbox. Um, as Baptists, we love to be free and autonomous, that's wonderful. It's not great when it comes to salary and benefits, though, because we don't have, like some other denominations, some best practices, uh, presbyteries, some things in place that say, hey, church A, B, you should do not only this salary level for every employee, this level of benefits. Each and every one of our 225 churches that we serve is negotiating that on their own. And if they've had a pastor for 20 years, they hire a new pastor, they're beginning all the way again. So to reiterate what you were saying, KP, we're talking to church committees about recruiting. They spend a lot of money and time to recruit, but also to retain that talent. You retain that talent by offering them fair and equitable compensation and benefits. So when the next church comes calling along in five years, they're like, well, do I really want to leave for this? And they can negotiate again. So... Andy, that's why we're working with Empower to offer every one of our participants a free financial plan. We've got a very generous grant that's offering money to get people to finish those plans. Um, and we want to get to that place where we have better tools in place to, to compare for churches. So we're striving to that. And that is one reason that Baptist Women in Ministry of North Carolina partners with Church Benefits Board is we want to provide the best resources we can for women in ministry. Again, it's what we don't know that that comes to haunt us. And so how can we resource our women in ministry? How can we resource churches in order to form these partnerships that will be win-wins for the church and for the individual? And, and I'm going to throw this in, kingdom of God. Because if we're working on all this, an end result will be uh, that we are doing what we say we want to do is to build the kingdom of God. Our guests are Kathy Gore Chapel, I'm Rob Fox. You can learn more about CBF Benefits Board at churchbenefits.org. Mm -hmm.
We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, a model ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then a model ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Hey folks, before we get to the second part of this episode, an interview with Meredith Stone, we'll let you know that we recorded this this summer at General Assembly and we're having some technical difficulties while we were there. We've tried our best to clean it up, but it's not at the level we'd like for it to be. The audio is just a little distracting, but Meredith is not. Enjoy. I guess for this week's CBF podcast conversation is the Reverend Dr. Meredith Stone. She's the Executive Director for Baptist Women in Ministry, or BWM. You can now add to her credentials, CNN personality. Meredith, thank you for joining the conversation. Always great to be with you, Andy. All right, we're, we're going we're gonna to start right there. Uh, you were recently featured on CNN, I assume because Baptists have collectively agreed that patriarchy should be dismantled and women deserve an equal place in pastoral leadership as men. Don't we all wish? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, not true, though, as the Southern Baptists quadrupled down on their take that women cannot serve as pastors, um, and that got quite a lot of national news coverage in this past month. We were talking about this uh, pre-recording that isn't it sad that, you know, it it takes something like that, something negative and horrible and um, so undeserving of, of, of women to actually feature your brilliant work on, on something like CNN. Why does it take negativity to get somebody like you on? And it's for everybody. Everybody who works in justice work, I think, has this same experience where um, it takes something bad happening that gets a lot of attention in order for us to have a chance to really spread our message and push things a little bit farther. Um, I think the world responds whenever things are both big and small. And by that I mean it, it, it gets a lot of attention but also in some way hits close to home. And so I think for this, one of the things that it did at least for, for Baptists who are, have already come to this place of being affirming of women, is that this just hit really close to home for us because they were saying the things that penetrated our psyches for so long, these, these ideas about women, and they were also putting people on these lists, um, our friends who are pastors, 
and putting them in, in the public eye in a way that was using them as props. And that hits close to home and makes us mad. And so I think it, it got a lot of attention um, in the national media. I think Rick Warren was involved, and that gets the attention. But, but I think even more than that, among uh, our kind of Baptists, it also is something that we're talking about a lot because it hit really close to home for us. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things that kind of processing, because a, a lot of ministers' name were in North Carolina, and um, representing that state and caring for our ministers. Um, I think for a lot of people, you know, we felt like we have moved on. Like, I, I moved on years ago, right? Um, I, but but it, it was almost like reliving this trauma um, of things that have happened in the last 30 years. And I'm saying this as a privileged white male, and I, I certainly understand that the ongoing trauma of women in ministry that continue to have to deal with this. I was about to say another word, but it's been a long week. Um, you know, so, so talk to us about that, that, that trauma. That, that, you know, is, is, that, is that a kind of a realistic thing that it's, it's, been, it's playing, or is it a new form of trauma? Um, take us a little deeper there. If you talk to people who got kicked out of their family of origin for something that they couldn't change, something essential to who they are. You would hear them talk about losing this piece of their identity, this place that formed them, these people that were supposed to love them no matter what, and they kicked them out. The people who gave them that identity then when it developed said, that's not acceptable. And that's the kind of pain that people carry with them in those situations, and I think it's the same pain that happens whenever women get kicked out of their faith family. You know, it, was, it was the SBC that taught us to follow God's call, that taught us that, that we should respond to Jesus, that we, we should do all of these things in the world, and then the very second that we step into the identity that they gave us, they kick us out of the family. And so in some ways it would have been easy in this moment to just say, you know, the SBC is being the SBC and we just, you know, that's fine. We know who they are. Let's stick to our tribe. But in other ways, we connected with that, that trauma that we felt when we felt kicked out of our faith family, the SBC, for those of us who were a part of it before. And I think for a, a, a lot of women in congregations, they're they're having to have these really hard conversations because uh, a lot of churches still in some way connect to the SBC and that's a part of their faith identity. And faith identity for us is, is even stronger than family of origin identity. It's telling us who we are in our souls. And so as, um, as they're having to make these decisions about how are we going to continue to connect, um, I, th I think about the fact that even if those women are not in a place of being fully egalitarian, they're still being put in the situation of being kicked out of their family simply for doing what their family created them to do. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a pretty deep kind of pain. And we're going to get to the, this open letter in just a second. But, you know, it just, just kind of dawned on me. And... Um, 
You know, I, I say this as uh, an individual who um, works at the denominational level where 70% of our churches are still dually lined, primarily with state convention um, type levels. You know, after something like this, and you, st- you start to hear so often, well, we stay together because of historic mission purposes. At what point does that argument, and I know that it's not an argument, it is a, a realistic value for people. At what point does that value over historic missional purposes um, become so devalued because you are displacing other sense of calling? Yeah, I, it, it's a good question, and I think different people figure that out in different places and for different reasons. Because for some people, this issue with the SBC, they immediately walked away. There are so many women who 40 years ago went and became Presbyterian pastors, Lutheran pastors, uh, Methodist pastors, because, and, and they freely said, okay, if you're not going to take me, we're done. But then, as you say, the, these other people who, who connect with historic mission, identity kinds of things, um, and they're trying to figure out what's, what's the thing that pushes us over the line. Systems, you know, institutions, for a lot of people, uh, like I said, give us this sense of identity. And so for some of us, we want to stay within that system and institution and fight for different policies and procedures. And I think we do that as long as we think there is something embedded in the values of the system that would enable it to see our argument. Is there anything there that would help us get to the point where we could change these policies? And at some point you have to say, okay, the system has now cloaked itself so deeply within this oppression of people that there is no way that we are going to be able to continue to push for that kind of, that kind of change. And so... In all of it, you have to be looking at the side of the person who is suffering, the person who is put in the situation of being devalued and experienced that oppression. And as long as that person wants to fight, hopefully there are people who come alongside them and look at the system and say, where are the places where we can use their values to affect their procedures? But when there's that disalignment, then I think all of our allegiance should shift to the marginalized person and say, what is the way we can protect this person as best we can? I'm at a place, and different of us are going to get to a place uh, at different times, but I came to a place a a long time ago, and I think that's been further reinforced, that the SBC's essential values, there's nothing there that I can connect to to get them to change their policies and procedures anymore. They are so deeply embedded in various kinds of oppression and are going to cover up any kind of hurt for victims and survivors of oppression and abuse that we have to shift. And we have to say our priority needs to be only protecting the people who are marginalized in these situations. And sometimes that means responding the way that they want us to respond. So for some of them, they want us to try and find a system in which they can continue to live within it, but put in protective measures of them. But for many of them, I'm really hopeful at this point that it's something that they can see. Our women pastors are no longer safe. And and children's pastors, women's 
pastors, youth pastors, senior pastors, associate pastors, chaplains, they're no longer safe in this system that does not view them as having equal value to men. If you think about the irony of supporting missions that is about caring for the marginalized while also pushing the marginalized out with your financial contributions to those mission organizations. Um, so BWIM composed an open letter to Baptist women um, at this recording at the end of June. The letter is just shy of about 4,000 votes and some incredible names that are in there of people that are supporting this. Um, the letter begins um, like this. For centuries, people have told women they are not as valuable to God's work in the world as men are. Even today, men are taking action against women who are ministering, leading, and pastoring to spread the love and grace of Jesus Christ. They are wrong. Um, I know you've had a chance to speak with, with many of these women named in both of these you know, reports. Um, what, what are they saying to you? They're saying a lot of things, frankly. Um, some of the women who were put on these lists had the experience of feeling proud. I'm proud to be someone who is a pastor, and you can put me on your list all day long. I don't care. I'm proud to be who I am. Sometimes the same women, you know, just within a few hours, flipped a switch and said, wait a second, I'm proud, but you don't get to use me for your agenda. Other women, immediately when they were put on these lists, felt like their ministry and their person was threatened. Yeah, society is so polarized right now, and, and you get certain kinds of people riled up about something, and they're likely to do things that are not great. And unfortunately, I, I've heard a few stories of things that have happened in people's congregations that were the very kind of things we feared the moment we saw these lists. There was one woman who uh, is a, a single staff pastor of a small church. She's been pastoring there for 20 years. Her church and her, her face appeared on the list. But her parsonage is actually on church property. And so on that list, there's also a map to the church property. And she said to me, he put a map to my house on that list. I've been over here doing what God has called me to do, keeping my head down, not trying to cause any problems. And now he put a map to my house on this list. He brought the fight to my doorstep, so I'm not going to be quiet anymore. I can you imagine the audacity of this person to do such a thing? The thing that I, I recognize, surely there has to be a, a lack of realism about what they actually did, about how they actually use these people. And I think that's probably because being in these kinds of systems can cloud our vision of the people that we are hurting so deeply. But if they could have seen her eyes, that pastor's eyes when she said, he put a map to my house. And the fear that she had, that people were going to show up on her doorstep. I hope that maybe he would have understood that th this is not an acceptable kind of thing to do. But with the open letter that you referred to, uh, a lot of women have told us that 
it's been really important for them to hear a lot of things, a lot of words of support, but that those three words, they are wrong, have been the most important ones for them to hear. You know, the, the, these messages that we hear in society and in the church about women and women's roles, and even when we know that they're wrong, they're, they're, there's something about it that just kind of gets in our souls and is constantly making us have to negotiate our understanding of going, no, 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 I really am equal, even though all of these things happen to continually tell me that I, I, I am not. And so for almost 4,000 people to come together and sign on to this statement of reinforcing they are wrong. A lot of women have told me that that was really important for them to hear. Um, even though they, they already knew it, to have that be said so strongly was one of the most important things that we could do. I, I don't want to get lost in the conversation and, and talking about them as in the, the perpetrators That's right. of, of all this stuff. But the human emotion of, of shame is a God-given emotion. And we see in the Gospels often Jesus uses shame for the Pharisees to help them realize just how wrong they are on things. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, when I first saw the list and were reading through and have friends on that list, um, my first impulse was, what kind of list can we come up with? <laughs> what way can we shame these people? Just because I think to a certain extent, there is no changing people's hearts at times just through conversation. We've had four decades of this. Um, these are people who are also children of God, but sometimes you just wonder if the mechanism of shame is what it will take for some people. Um, and I will say in having conversations with clergy and lay leaders across the state of North Carolina, a lot of people are ashamed to be associated with this now and are leaving, and their churches are leaving. And so that, that's another piece of this solidarity that's taking place that I don't think they calculated that when, when they put out these lists and took these votes. Yeah, I, I am... I'm becoming more hopeful as I've seen the response of the last two weeks that these churches, even churches that, that are not at the place of being fully egalitarian, recognize the level to which this was wrong enough to where they want to say, we are different than that. We are, we're living into something that is very different. But back to something you said at the, at the very beginning of that, too, you know, the, the they in this. I think it's also important for all Baptists, um, even Baptists who say that they support and affirm women in ministry, for this to be a moment for them to really look and examine. Do I put that into practice as much as I think I do? Because if, if women who are in our circles, uh, who, who are in these these places that offer them support and their pastoring are still experiencing enough, enough obstacles that they need to hear so deeply that those people over there are wrong. That's because the people who are close to them are doing things that are wrong as well, and it's not being called out. 
for a lot of us, it's, it's, there's unconscious things. There's, there's systemic things that are embedded in our congregations that were created before our congregations got to the place of being affirming women in ministry that we just don't even think about. Things where there is an, an assumption that men are the norm, and because it's so uh, prevalent in our society, we, we don't even think to question it. And so I, th I think this is an opportunity not only for churches who have any connection to the Southern Baptist Convention to really start asking themselves some hard questions about what are our values and what do we want to say to women in our congregation, but also for churches who have moved away from the Southern Baptist Convention to say, they are showing us what we don't want to be, but we, we don't want to be that so much that we need to go the opposite direction. We, we need to flip the script and not just think about, well, we're going to you know, say that we support women in ministry. No, we're going to flip our churches and our congregational practices to really show people in every action that we have that we value every person in this congregation equally. The, the letter concludes this way. In these days when law is spoken to keep you from expressing all your gifts in God's service, never forget that you are beloved, you are whole, and you are free. Uh, for those listening, if you want to sign the letter, you can visit bwim.info. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. Um, last night, well, day we were recording this, last night at General Assembly, um, you spoke about the Multiply campaign. Um, you, uh, you said this is a world in which women in ministry are wanted, not just permitted. A world in which women in ministry are celebrated, not just tolerated. A world in which women in ministry thrive, not just survive. What's the underlying vision uh, of the multiplying campaign? Uh, our, our vision is that we we want to be able to create work that is going to flip the script. Uh, that that truly is going to help us say it's not enough for us to help our churches understand why they need to support women, but we want to take the next step and saying we want to help you figure out how to put that into practice. We want to create a culture that is not just, well, you know, I, I know a woman pastor. We don't even be able to say that anymore. We want, we want there to exist cultures where there are just pastors. And it's maybe the pastors are, are men or women or non-binary people, but we just know pastors, and we don't even have to specify that they're women pastors because we just know that they're pastors and men hasn't been normalized so that when you say pastor, you immediately assume man. So our, our hope within uh, this next phase of our work is to really uh, double down on some areas that we have done well for a long time in providing support systems to women, but to grow in our advocacy efforts. Um, in, in any system in which people have been oppressed, we, 
we tend to get to the place of thinking, well, we, we just want to get to where the oppressed person is viewed as equal. But that's not enough. Because in any system of oppression, there are people who are starting at a disadvantage and people who are starting at an advantage. And what that means is when we just treat them as equal, then we're further reinforcing the privilege, the advantage of those who have been uh, the, the, the people who have benefited from the system for so long. So instead, what we have to do is we have to move toward equity. And that means sometimes we have to prop up, we have to uplift, we have to elevate women's perspectives and voices just to get to the place where they can be equal to men's voices. That's the idea behind, we, we want women in ministry to be wanted. Not just a place where we say, oh, it's fine if we have one pastor, sure, you know, or we're going to look at them equally to men. No, we want them to be wanted so much because for 2,000 years, they weren't wanted. So for us to even get to the idea of equal, we've got to get in a place where we are putting them on a pedestal and highlighting it and, and, and elevating it and celebrating it so much that people maybe can finally get to the place of actually just having a pastor and that that word is no longer a gendered word. One of the ways you're doing this is by cultivating resources to actually help congregations wrestle with these things and do spiritual formation around these things. So in partnership with CBF, BWIM has created this new resource called Equally Called. Um, tell us the vision behind it. Equally called, uh, Paul Baxley and I started talking about a year ago. It, it's interesting that it's coming out right now when, when all of this controversy has happened in the SBC and some folks have said, oh, well, are, are y'all just responding to what's happening? But no, this is actually something we, we were talking about for a year. Um, I actually would, it, my vision of where I had hoped a resource like this would go was that it would be three steps down the road where we could all assume the biblical support for women in ministry, and we could be talking about our, our uh, personnel policies. <laughs> we could be talking about how we're going to change the way we're doing gender-based ministries. But what we realize is that maybe we're not quite even there across the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and that maybe we have assumed that we understand why we support women in ministry. And so we decided that perhaps the best place to start was to go back to the beginning, and as Baptists being a people of the book, uh, to sit down with Scripture and say, we want to show you not just these, these same old arguments which are apologetic and saying, well, here's how you can you know, read this text that actually seems to be limiting to women. We wanted to move in a little different direction and say, we want to show you all of the ways in which the Bible is actually promoting shared ministry in which the Bible is actually presenting this picture of humanity working together as both the beginning of what, what God was doing in creation and creating male and female and giving them both the charge of what they're going to do in creation and also the vision of the end, of what we are moving toward, of the redemption that Jesus is providing into a world in which there is no more hierarchy, in which all people are sharing together in what God is doing in the world. And so the, the hope for the, the curriculum was is to move into that positive view of the Bible, uh, but then to also put that into dialogue with the experiences that women are having in ministry, 
so that folks could see, hey, this is a contradictory picture to what the Bible is actually presenting as what God wants for us. And so our, our hope is that it will start the process and start a conversation for congregations, that they can look at the text, they can start thinking about women's experiences, and then from there, they can, can begin to do some work of assessing what's our next step. Uh, yeah, as we look at our, our church, our culture, the folks who are in our church, things that need to happen, what could we identify as the first thing that we could do to start to move toward a congregation that, that expresses equity for women in leadership? We've, we've talked about as a fellowship, um, two of us often talked about, uh, we believe women are equally called and yet the belief is not fully lived out. And you and I have spoken extensively about the percentage of CBF churches um, senior pastor by, by women. You've been doing more hands-on work with search committees. Can, can you talk to us about that work and, and the elements of it that help congregations maybe recognize their bias, unseen bias, unconscious bias, if you will, uh, in the search process? Yeah, uh, it, part of this goes to this idea of instead of treating women and, and men candidates equally in the search process, that we have to move toward equity. We have to move toward treating women candidates equitably. But in order to help search committees get to the, the, the place where they could even think about doing that, um, part of the work that I do in these trainings for search committees is to help them understand how deeply embedded structural sexism is into really the whole faith system of Christianity, but in the way that our congregations work to the point of here are the ways this disadvantages women from the time that they are born to the time that their resume appears in your email inbox. And doing that, hel helping them think about these structures and these systems, my, my goal is always that as a co the committee can get to a place of starting to have unconscious biases rise to being conscious. It doesn't mean in, in the hour or two that I spend with that search committee that they are going to eliminate those biases. That, that's going to take a lot longer. But if we can just get to the point of making the unconscious conscious, it changes the way that search committees even have conversations. It changes the way that they talk to women candidates. It changes the way that they view resumes when they can say, oh, you know what? When we're listening to women candidates, I didn't realize it, but yeah, when her voice is higher than a man's, I think about her differently. I tend to just think that a deep voice is authoritative. And frankly, you know, when Otis Moss yesterday was preaching in his deep, strong, powerful voice, I was, it's, sometimes it is. But you know what? A woman's higher voice can be just as powerful. And what we have to do is we have to recognize that it, we are unconsciously, immediately giving an advantage, not because of anything that we have done, but just because of the way the system has gone. And so I, I found that these trainings have been really helpful with the search committees that I've worked with. It. And it, for almost everyone, someone on the search committee says something to the effect of, um, gosh, I wish our whole congregation could hear this. And what that's told me and why we're moving into more congregational advocacy 
is that congregations do need to hear this so they can figure out what they're going to do next. Um, I'll tell you a real quick story. There's a, um, a documentary that's on Netflix called Picture a Scientist. It's about women in, in STEM fields in science, and it talks about their experiences and what's it's, what it's like. Again, another male-dominated profession. And as a part of this documentary, there's a, a place where a, a woman who you know, didn't really believe in all of this bias, she it, herself, a neuroscientist, creates an implicit bias test that you can't trick. It's impossible to trick. It's an association test. I have taken this test myself. Uh, the one that I took had to do with gender and careers, like business, being in the workplace. And these systems of bias are so deeply embedded in us that when I took this test, I scored as strongly biased against women in the workplace. This is literally my job. But yet, the bias that is prevalent in our society is so deeply ingrained in us that unless we talk about it, unless we bring it to the conscious level, it's driving my actions, it's driving my thoughts, even when I'm not even aware of what's going on. I know, I know we talk about um, the less than 8% of churches that are pastored by women in CBF life. Do you, do you ever think about... Um, the, the focus so much on the senior pastor role um, that some people have a sense of calling to do associate work, to yeah. do youth ministry work, to do children's work, to do pastoral care work. Do you ever, do you feel like, or do you think it's possible that um, such an amplified focus on the senior pastor becomes this like, this this pinnacle that people feel like maybe they're forced to reach or they feel disparaged if they don't have a sense of calling to go reach that? Yeah, this is a good, a good and fair question. Um, and I've had this conversation with a lot of women. The fact that so many people talk about and that, that we use this as a, a primary statistic in which we are helping people understand where we are, that, that sometimes there's this culture in which women feel as if, if they're not seeking to be a senior pastor, if they're not in that role, that they're somehow disappointing the rest of us. And my response is always, the only, the only way that you would be disappointing us is if you are not following what God wants you to do right now. Um, I think it's so important that we, we get to a place of, of deconstructing everything to the point where, yeah, we're trying to do this equitable thing and, and push women and uplift and celebrate all of these, these places, but we, we also are able to say... The real thing that we want is freedom. A and freedom looks like being able to pursue anything that you feel called to do. And so some women maybe even feel forced in the opposite way, to be pushed toward senior pastor kinds of roles, when maybe that's not what they're called toward. And that's not what we want either. And so with, with these statistics that we do, we, we, whenever we did the most recent State of Women Baptist Life report, people care a lot about these statistics, but I, I wanted to take time to really ask, why are we doing this? Is this something that we need to reshape because of the fact that I had gotten so much feedback from folks of feeling as though their roles and other kinds of ministry weren't as valued? But I think it's still important to count those statistics. And there, there's a couple of reasons why that's the one that we put forward. The first is because 
it's the one that's easiest to count. I'm just going to be honest. It's a practical thing. In order to be able to count all of the associate pastors and ministers in, in different fields, it's a lot harder to figure out who those people are and what roles they're in. So there's a practicalness to it. But the other part of it is, is that I think when you look at the what's considered to be the highest level of leadership in a church, that that's where you can see a pretty big reflection of values. Um, churches might be quicker to move toward embracing women in these different kinds of roles, but until they would get to the point where they're truly actually considering in an equitable way women for their senior pastor position, they hadn't quite got there yet. Um, the other part is that when women are in these roles, they're able to affect the culture of a congregation in a different kind of way. I think that women who are ministering in associate roles, if they have a woman serving as their senior pastor, they're actually going to have a pretty different experience than those who have a man serving as their senior pastor. I'm not saying there's not great men out there. There are great men out there. But it's very different. Um, my husband is the only man who works in an office with 10 women. And he shifted from a culture in which there were a whole lot of men and there was a whole lot of... Um, hierarchical power and he will tell you that the environment the culture is so different whenever you are in that kind of of, of flipped dynamic and that it can, it can be a place where there could be a lot of growth and not even just in terms of gender equality but they have conversations about racial equity that that probably go so much further because Everybody in that office is coming from a different place. So, yes, you are absolutely right in that question. We want to celebrate every woman in ministry. Another thing that we're doing right now is we're, we're trying to use the phrase in our, our mission statement of women in ministry and leadership as well. Because women are not just, sometimes ministry is associated with congregational ministry, but there are women who are leading in Baptist life outside of the church, uh, in nonprofit organizations, and chaplaincy, and as missionaries, and they are being formed as much by what we do as Baptists as our congregational ministers are. And so we want to support them, and we want to help create those environments of empowerment for them as well. Since we're counting... I think it's important to note this week while we're here, Tanya Parks was called as the senior pastor of University Park Church. Dear friend, an amazing calling. Uh, I told the pastor search team there that I deserve a finder's fee uh, for, for, <laughs> for that. They left it off. Uh, Equally Called Initiative is, is written with an adult, youth, and children's version. It's kind of our last question here. Um, what, why is it important for this conversation to start among adolescents? Wow, I, I, why is it not? The, the culture that my kids are growing up in, in their schools and in their, their lives with their friends and, and on their social media, is so different than the one that we experienced. The ideas that they're encountering every single day are, unfortunately, because social media is pretty polarized, frankly. And so they're probably either getting far, far messages of, of living within a society that embraces and enforces hierarchy or far messages that are saying, we, we have got to be upending all of this. And so I think it's important for our, our children and our congregations 
to be able to know who we are, to be able to know why we think that that exists, so that they can articulate that within this polarized society that they're, they're living in. Uh, my children, too, if, if someone were to tell them, you know, women can't be pastors, they would laugh in their faces. And that, that was before I had this job, because it, it's so much a part of their world to understand women's equality. And so for our kids, if they get in a church and, and what they see on Sunday is not equality, that's going to be so contradictory to what they know to be true in the rest of the world that there's going to be a dissonance there and the church is no longer relevant. All of those chips away about, oh my gosh, why does the church not matching what we see in society? So for our kids, our youth, I think it's important that we have these conversations so that they, we help them understand why, but we, we also help them get to a place of seeing how the church can be the people of God today. And for adults, you know, we, it, we're all, we always need to keep learning. Uh, despite what some people say, I, I do think people of all ages can continue to learn and grow. Um, in order for us to get to a point where women in ministry are wanted, celebrated, where they thrive, it's going to take the whole congregation. It's going to take the whole congregation knowing without a doubt that this is a person who can speak into my life. Not just this pocket or this pocket or this pocket, but everybody. And so we're, we, we thought it was really important for the Equally Called curriculum to have opportunities for the whole congregation to do that. The impact of the work is, is remarkable. I'd, just a quick anecdote here as we're wrapping up our time. Dallas, last time I was in General Assembly, two times ago, right? We, we overlapped with our dear brethren in the SBC, and my four-year-old and I were standing in line, and she saw the lanyards because she knew that was associated with, um, you know, CBF events. And she said, are they with CBF? And I said, no, they're a different kind of Baptist. And she said, well, what makes them different? And I said, well, they don't call women as pastors. And she, out of the mouth of a four-year-old, she goes, well, that's not fair at all. <laughs> that's actually kind of dumb. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so our guest is uh, Reverend Dr. Meredith Stone, the Executive Director for Baptist Women in Ministry. You can learn more about her work at bwim.info. Meredith, it's always an honor and pleasure to sit down and have a conversation with you. It's great. Thanks, Andy. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of Scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of Scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. 
And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.